Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, it's Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you live from the offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine, for what is turning out to be our last um, Parenting Your Challenging Child radio program until September. This is it. Um, We do this September through May, but next Monday is Memorial Day here in the United States, and we won't be doing a program next Monday. And um, though we had given thought to having the program air over the summer as well, looks like we're not going to be doing that this summer. Um, Maybe next summer. We'll see. It's been quite a year for parenting your challenging child. Um, Lots of people have called in. We actually have somebody waiting on the line right now. I'll get to you in area code 212 just as quickly as I can, which should be in about a minute. Um, Lots of callers, lots of information, lots of, we hope, people um, being helped by the program. And that's the whole idea. And that's what Lives in the Balance is, of course, all about, providing as much in the way of free resources as we possibly can to help people understand and help behaviorally challenging kids better and, of course, to advocate on behalf of not only the kids but also their parents and teachers and other caregivers. And um, that's what we're about, and that's what we'll always be about. Got a bunch of email that we could answer on today's program, but... Callers always take top priority on the program, and so we're going to go with our first caller. We have two on the line now, one also from area code 347. Um, Be with you shortly. Area code 212, though, you're on the air. Tell us what's on your mind today. Area code 212, are you there? I think not. Let's go to area code 347. Uh, Waiting for you to come on here. Hang on one second. Uh, Area code 347 is gone. My goodness. We're not having very good luck today. Um, So I'm going to go to the email and um, see what we have here. Uh, Hi, Dr. Green. I've been reading and rereading The Explosive Child to help my five-year-old, whose explosions, which include hitting me, screaming, breaking things, name-calling, are not triggered by Plan A or Plan B. His rages are brought on by spilling his food, having a stuck zipper, getting water in his boots. I'm struggling with how the Plan B approach can be used to tame the outbursts. Many of these triggers are one-offs, so they can't really be addressed as something that keeps happening. I get it. Is it just the exercise of going through with him what the alternative choices he could have made before exploding, such as suggesting he asked for help when he spilled food instead of throwing his plate on the floor? It's 
the anger response I need to tame, and I just can't get Plan B to accomplish this. Help. Very interesting question. Um, here's my suggestion. You might want to st- – I get it, though, um, that there are things that your son is getting upset about that aren't so predictable. Of course, one question that I might have is how unpredictable they are. But yes, um, although spilling his food, I suppose, could be somewhat predictable. Having a stuck zipper may not come up that much, and getting water in his boots might not come up that much. Both, All of these would be examples of things not going the way he hoped they would or thought they would. But it's very hard to work on uh, something so vague with a kid as things not going the way he thought they would because that can include so many different things. Um, so one question is, could you start, got to start somewhere. That's the key. Got to start somewhere. And the starting somewhere will serve you well on the ones that come up in the heat of the moment or seem like, as you're calling them, one-offs. Um, but we've got to get the ball rolling on him coming to see you as a um, person who can help him through frustrating situations, talk him through it, come up with ideas for what would be helpful. Um, That's what we're looking to have happen, and that may be more likely to happen proactively, working on the unsolved problems that are predictable, even though it is quite clear that there are some that don't occur very often, um, uh, so you're, what's going on in the heat of the moment will be helped by the ones that you are trying to work with outside the heat of the moment. We've got to get the ball rolling somewhere. My question is, do you have some that are more predictable that you can get the ball rolling on? Right now, you are primarily giving us information about the ones that seem to be un predictable. And yes, I get it that those exist. My question is, are there any that are predictable that would help you get the ball rolling? You're welcome to call into the program if you wish. Um, That number, let me get that up here again, 347-994-2981. I hope that answers the question. It's true. The ones that aren't predictable are harder to do proactively because we don't know that they're coming. The big question is, are there predictable ones we could start working on to get the ball rolling? All right. There you go. Here's another. Let me just read through this a little bit. Ah. Well, I'll read it anyways, even though it doesn't require a great deal of feedback. Hi, Dr. Green. I'm reading The Explosive Child to help me understand my five-year-old grandson. I've taken care of him since he was six years old because his mother, my daughter, works full-time. Now I just take care of him three days a week after kindergarten and occasionally on the weekends to give his parents a break. I like the book. I raised four children, one of whom was difficult. I know there is a better way to deal with children like my grandson than using the conventional wisdom. My only complaint is that my grandson doesn't like the cover of the book. He noticed it recently and said it makes him feel sad because the boy feels bad about getting mad. I just turn the book over when he's at my home so he doesn't see it. 
Thanks again for an insightful program. You know, um, you may not be the only one who's never been especially enthusiastic about the cover of the book. And when the fifth edition of the book comes out later this year, the cherry bomb-looking kid on the front cover with the fuse coming out of his head will be gone. Uh, And not necessarily gone because I didn't like it. Um, Gone because um, it's gone. Uh, So, no more cherry bomb-looking kid with a fuse coming out of his head. Now, it's interesting. Um, One could surmise that your grandson's reaction to the imagery um, was a bit of a projective test for him. Not every kid sees a um, kid who feels bad that he lost his temper. Not every kid sees that. Um, I'm glad that your grandson saw that because, uh, or felt that because that says to me that, um, well, he feels bad when he gets mad. That's okay. Good for him to know that. Good for you all to talk about it. Good. More? Let me just check. No callers. Here we go. Um, Dr. Green, I want help for a kid who is six years old and has a diagnosis of, has diagnoses of ODD, ADHD combined type, rage disorder, DCD, and social delay. Finds it hard to make friends, though he wants to but ends up picking a fight, turning violent, throwing stuff around, and destroying the classroom. After he de-escalates and calms down, then he can talk about his problem for a very brief period of time. So it's very hard for us to ask him about his unsolved problems, because when you try asking him, he will just scream out the word, no, no, no. Please tell us. How do we talk to him? Um, Wow, there's a few different strategies you could use. Um, it sounds like you are trying to talk with him proactively. He's not being especially receptive to being talked to proactively. The first question I have is whether there's anything about him um, that would make it hard for him to participate in Plan B in the first place. Um, I can't think of anything. If, if, if what you mean by DCD is developmental coordination disorder, I can't necessarily think of anything about that that would make it hard for him to participate in the verbal give and take of Plan B. Uh, rage disorder tells us about his behavior. Social delay tells us an area in which he's having difficulty. ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, tells us about his behavior. ADHD combined type tells us about his behavior. There are some ADHD kids who um, are very inattentive and have trouble concentrating on the conversation. There are some kids diagnosed with ADHD who are very hyperactive and have a great deal of difficulty uh, sitting still for the conversation. But my first question is whether we might hypothesize about what's 
making it hard for this child. Um, one thing that does come to mind, some kids don't like being surprised with the topic. Um, and so sometimes it's good to give them advance warning of the fact that we'd like to talk uh, and give them advance warning of what it is that we would like them, what would like to talk with them about. Some kids think they're in trouble, even though we're trying to do plan B. And so one question is whether we need to precede our discussion with him about a particular topic, about a particular unsolved problem, by talking with him about um, the fact that he seems to be having difficulty talking. What would that sound like? We've noticed that sometimes when we want to talk with you about a particular problem, that's hard for you. What's up? Now, um, he may not be very receptive to that either, in which case we may want to um, resort to another strategy that I often use, um, and I don't know this kid at all, and I'm not reading anything about him that would make me think he wouldn't be receptive to this, but we need might need to do, I sometimes do a survey with kids, tell them we're, I'm going to ask them some questions and could they respond on a zero to five scale. Five, very true. Zero, not true at all, and everything in between. And the only real challenge in doing this with a child is to, uh, hopefully they can understand the zero to five concept. And then what we are doing is we are asking them to rate certain statements. And I'm not usually, and I've talked about this on this program before, I'm not usually um, too uh, serious on my first few questions, so I might say something like, I like spaghetti, zero to five. Okay, now, now, that, now often, and I find this to be almost universally true, if a kid understands the zero to five concept, I like spaghetti, will draw you know, a, an honest response related to you know, how they feel about spaghetti. I like pizza, zero to five. Okay, now the kid's a little intrigued, right? And here's the good news. Um, we, we're accomplishing our mission. We are engaging him in uh, conversation. He's hanging in there. He's not just saying no, no, no. He's being engaged. Then we can um, slide in a question like, um, I hate talking about problems, zero to five. Uh, and many kids will get a five there, but not necessarily. Um, one kid who I like very much, who I've been working with lately, I then asked, so this is something I do fairly routinely, by the way, I then said, I hate talking about my problems because I'm embarrassed. He then abandoned the zero to five rating and said, it's not that I'm embarrassed, I'm uncomfortable. Wow. Now, we've done the zero to five things more with that particular child, but lately he hasn't really been so needy of the zero to five scale. He'd prefer that we just talk regular. Good. But the zero to five is how we got the ball rolling. And there you have it. Um, one question, of course, is the language piece. Is there something about doing this 
that he's having a real hard time with. And that's the other thing that I'd be giving some thought to as you're um, trying to proceed with him. But sometimes you have to talk about talking before you can start talking about the things you actually want to talk about. And that's okay. If you're not gathering information, it makes it extremely difficult, of course, to solve the problem on the basis of that information. Here's another. No calls today. We had two in the beginning. Neither panned out. Here we go. Dr. Green, my daughter, but here's the good news. We are making our way through emails that uh, have gone unanswered for quite some time here, so that's good. I'm glad we are doing this in our last program of until September. Dr. Green, my daughter is six and a half years old. I have been trying to get us help for her behavior for two and a half years. She has just been diagnosed with ODD. Now I'm going to um, take a break from the email for a second. Um, I don't know. Do, 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 does that tell us much about a child besides what behavior the child is exhibiting, which we already know? You know my answer. No. Back to the email. The psychological evaluation clearly shows that she also has depression but does not diagnose her with such. I also think she has at least some ADHD. All right, so, so far, I'm editorializing again. We are completely focused on behavior and diagnoses, the categories that capture those behaviors. Of course, they only capture the behaviors if the behaviors cluster together in a way that coincides with what the diagnostic manual says qualifies, which is why an evaluation could say that a child uh, has some depressive features but does not diagnose the child with depression. Um, if a child has some depressive features, I'm interested whether the child meets criteria for depression or not. But to be perfectly honest, I'd rather know what unsolved problems and lagging skills are setting the stage for the child to behave in ways that coincide with what we call oppositional defiant disorder behave in ways that coincide with what we call depression, behave in ways that coincide with ADHD. Um, if your child is exhibiting some of the behaviors that are associated with those diagnoses, we're interested whether your child meets diagnostic criteria for those diagnoses or not. What I can promise you is this. If your child is exhibiting behaviors that coincide with oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, and depression, um, I am about as certain as I can possibly be that your child has lagging skills and unsolved problems. And I think that's what you want your focal point to be. All right, let me continue with the email. We have tried behavior modification plans such as sticker charts, TV time, timeouts, one, two, three, magic, and every other behavior management strategy known to mankind. I have tried the steps in your system as well. My child is losing her childhood with every day that passes. Nothing is working. I feel like we are unable to truly show each other how much we love each other because we are always in conflict. The therapists in our area seem to think that behavior modification and parenting techniques 
are the cure, but it doesn't work, and they are not listening to me when I tell them it doesn't work. I love my daughter more than anything and just want to be able to show her how much I love her and want to be able to show love and re- want her to be able to show love in return. I don't know what to do. I am so afraid that this will destroy our relationship forever and that her behavior will get much worse. My heart hurts so badly for my little girl, and I can't do anything to make it better. Well, um, there's always something that can be done to make things better. Um, You've indicated that you have tried implementing Plan B. The big question is whether there are things that could be done to troubleshoot your use of Plan B that might help it work better for you. The things I would look for that would tell me that um, you've done it the way it ought to be done is whether you've used the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems on the Lives in the Balance website. You can find it in the paperwork section to identify your daughter's lagging skills Um, so you have a good sense of what's getting in our way. And then simultaneously identify the specific conditions, I call them unsolved problems, that are setting in motion these behaviors that you have referenced in your message. If we don't know what the unsolved problems are, They're not going to get solved because we're not going to know what it is that we're trying to solve. And as I've been saying lately, mushy, unsolved problems usually lead to a mushy plan B, which leads to mushy solutions if you've gotten that far. So we need to make sure that what you're doing isn't mushy. We need to make sure that um, you're actually working on highly specific unsolved problems that you've identified those unsolved problems ahead of time so you can be doing all of this proactively. You don't want to be doing this in the heat of the moment. You want to be doing it proactively. The bad news is we're not broadcasting on this radio program during the summer. So the best I can do is say if you're still having these difficulties, but what we do is notify people that the, their uh, email has been answered during the program. So um, you will know, and you'll hear my response. Um, and if you want to send Lives in the Balance an email, letting us, uh, and, and it'll get to me, um, with any other questions you might have about the response, if you feel that waiting till September is too long, if you want to call into the program, um, send us an email. We'll do our best. More email. This is nice. We're getting to a lot of emails today that I would have liked to have uh, gone through earlier. Dr. Green, before I dive into all the material that is contained on the Lives in the Balance website, I'm wanting to know if these principles can be applied to a child with intellectual disabilities who is also on the autism spectrum. So many of the programs for oppositional children call for giving your child a voice and letting them talk. What if the child is mostly nonverbal or has trouble cognitively understanding what you are communicating? Just wondering if this has worked for any children similar to this. The answer, of course, is yes. And, um, well, it may not look like the videos on the Lives in the Balance website because those all depict 
um, what solving problems collaboratively looks like with a child who is verbal. What does it look like with a child who's not verbal? Well, when we have a child who's not verbal, we are willing to break one of the cardinal rules of solving problems collaboratively, and that is um, I'm always saying that adults shouldn't be geniuses when they're trying to figure out the child's concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem. You know, I haven't done that in a long time. I left my cell phone on, but we dealt with that quickly. Um, it's been a long time since I left my cell phone on. That used to be sort of my habit, but no longer. Um, okay to try to figure out what the child's unsolved problem is, uh, especially if the child doesn't have the communication skills to let you know. Now, here's what I've Here's what I know about all kids, irrespective of their capacity in the communication skills department. Um, they're all communicating that something's the matter when something's the matter. Well, most, almost all. Now, they're not always doing it with words. Sometimes they are grunting. Sometimes they are growling. Sometimes they are screaming. Sometimes they are crying. Kind of like infants. Infants don't have words, but infants, by and large, do let us know that something's the matter. They let us know, just not with words. And then it's left to us to try to figure out what's getting in their way. And with infants, you do kind of got to be a genius to try to figure out what is upsetting the infant. And, of course, with infants, there are a variety of possibilities, none of which they can tell us about, but eventually... If we are paying close attention and if we get to know our infant, some people have been tell you that they can tell one cry from another. I don't remember if I could tell one cry from another with my kids. That was too long ago. My bet is that I couldn't tell one cry from another, but I did develop with my children when they were infants a repertoire of things that could be the matter, wet diaper, which my recollection is didn't bother either of my children all that much. Hunger, heat, cold, wanting attention, wanting to be held, wanting to be entertained. All things infants communicate, uh, communicating that they're now awake, communicating that they don't feel well. All things infants communicate without words. All things we need to figure out in a kid who has no words, whether that kid is an infant or well beyond an infant in years, but not well beyond infancy in terms of language processing and communication skills development. What I've always said is um, we can do that with infants. Now, here, here's the, we can do it with any kid, but here's the other thing. We do have, there's actually some advantages we might have with an older kid that we may not have with young infants. We um, can depict those unsolved problems that we've identified in pictures by using Google Images or other available technologies. And we can create something for them that they can point to when they're letting us know that there's a problem. And that's a little bit harder to do in infants. And now we're communicating about unsolved problems without words 
And that's pretty cool. Can we do something very similar with solutions? We can. We can depict common solutions in pictures. And the child can be helped to participate in solution selection as well by putting in front of them a small menu of potential solutions. Um, we can do a lot with kids who have no words. Truth is, we do do a lot with kids who have no words. The big question is, can we um, do what we do to communicate with kids who have no words when it comes to unsolved problems and potential solutions to those unsolved problems? And the answer is, yes, we can. Now, one last thing. Uh, I know that you said that the child who you're referring to has intellectual disabilities and is on the autism spectrum. Um, I know you're thinking of a particular child, but I don't know the child who you're thinking of, and that description by itself does not tell me that the child um, would have difficulty participating in communicating about unsolved problems and potential solutions. That description alone doesn't say that. And so, I don't know if the child who you're talking about would have difficulty participating on the basis of us knowing that about them, but you'll find out. Thanks for your email. Still no calls. I should give the number again just in case. I'm feeling bad that I didn't realize that next Monday was Memorial Day here in these United States and that today is our last program of uh, until September. So there's about 15 minutes left in today's program. If you have any last-minute questions, 347-994-2981. Here's another. Uh, Dr. Green, I have a six-year-old son who could be Casey from your book, The Explosive Child. Yes, I remember Casey well, not his real name, but I remember Casey. I read it feeling like I was reading about my own child. I really want to use this program and try to help him. My issue is that my son has an expressive speech delay. He understands all that we are talking about, and he can tell me what makes him angry or frustrated, but he really comes he's really struggles with coming up with a solution to resolve it. I've come up with several possible scenarios for them, and then he tells me which one he likes and which one he thinks will be will be able to do. Is that still using plan B or am I using plan A in a in just a least offensive way? Well, first of all, a lot of what I said to the email just before yours would potentially apply to your son. I don't think it is a terrible first step to propose solutions and come agree on one that is realistic and mutually satisfactory. That's it's actually not solely up to the child to be the one generating solutions anyways. It's a team effort. This is a problem-solving partnership. Um, so if a kid has no ideas for a solution, perfectly fine for the adult to propose potential ideas. I try to do that as a last resort or encourage people to do that as a last resort just to encourage the child 
to start generating solutions on their own. Um, but nothing terrible about um, generating solutions if a child is unable to. Remember, though, uh, the solutions have to be realistic and mutually satisfactory. So if you feel that despite your child's expressive language delay, that he is able to participate in the process of determining whether the solution is going to work for him and whether it's realistic, um, no great tragedy if you're the one proposing the solutions, at least in the beginning. No great tragedy at all. Um, we, it would be good to come up with, to, to continue checking in with your son to see if he's able to generate any at any point along the way. And it wouldn't be tragic, and I could have said this on the last email as well, but it wouldn't be tragic if you came up with a template of um, general categories of solutions. I've mentioned this on the program before. Um, I've thought about this a meaningful amount, and, and the truth is it seems to me that most solutions fall into one of three categories. Ask for help do it a different way, give a little. Those can be depicted in pictures and will be depicted in pictures uh, in the next edition of The Explosive Child, but we'll put it on the Lives in the Balance website as well so that you don't have to um, buy the book to get those three solutions depicted in pictures. And a lot of kids can uh, who... Um, and it sounds like your son is not nonverbal. It just sounds like expressive language is a little slower. Um, it sort of gives them some nice categories that um, will help them start generating solutions on their own. Um, so instead of merely having you generating solutions, um, this is you helping your child um, create some categories for generating solutions. Um, and that's sort of baby steps. Uh, then, then what's happening is let's say your child is pointing at um, do it a different way. Then you are hypothesizing, if your child can't verbalize it, the different ways in which it could be done. And um, even those could be depicted in pictures. What you're doing is you're slowly but surely helping your child develop a bit of a vocabulary for problem solving and a repertoire for problem solving. Just another strategy. Thank you for your email. Let me... Um, oh, we have our some of our listeners saying, here's a, some commentary from uh, some of our listeners, if the child had a reading or math problem, you wouldn't punish or consequence the child. You figure out the problem together and get her the help she needs. If it's a developmental delay of sorts, a learning disability, uh, solving problems collaboratively repairs relationships and the child sees you as a helper. I agree. There we go. Shall we do some more? We only have, uh, let's see, nine minutes left. That phone number again, 347-994-2981. Here we go. Uh, let's see, Dr. Green, I've been working on Plan B with my seven-year-old daughter, and I'm having some trouble. We've come up with solutions to help curb her tantrums. She has agreed that deep breathing 
Reading a calm-down story and drawing are three things she can try. My question is, what happens when she starts to melt down and then refuses to try any of the tactics we agreed on? Once her mood is triggered, there is no reasoning or talking to her. She can go from zero to 100 in mere seconds, I believe you. I'm not sure how to respond to her. Advice? Yes. The solutions that you came up with were heat-of-the-moment solutions. That's why they frequently don't work. Deep breathing frequently doesn't work. Uh, Drawing in the heat of the moment frequently doesn't work. Reading a calm-down story in the heat of the moment frequently doesn't work. Now, every once in a while, I have people tell me that they feel like that stuff worked, but nothing, nothing takes the place of identifying the unsolved problems that are setting in motion those challenging episodes and solving those problems proactively rather than, and boy, is this an important point, rather than coming up with solutions for what the child should do when they are already heated up. A crucial point. So the plan B that you were doing has been oriented toward coming up with solutions for what should happen in the heat of the moment. You want solutions that are going to solve the problems that are causing heat of the moment so you don't find yourself in the heat of the moment because the problems have been solved. So that's a sort of a fundamental key point. Fundamental key point. You're not looking for solutions for what the child should do once they're already upset. You're looking to identify the problems that are causing the child to get upset and solve them so the child is no longer getting upset about them because they are now solved. So good for you for doing plan B proactively. A little bit more work to be done. Good for you for being brave and trying it. But some more work to be done related to uh, solving problems so they don't cause the heat of the moment. Those are the kinds of solutions you're looking to come up with. Here's the analogy I sometimes use. If I got pulled over for speeding a lot, are we looking for a solution for what I should do the next time I get pulled over? Or are we looking for a solution for what, how we're going to solve that problem so I don't get pulled over again in the first place? We're looking for a solution for what I should do so I don't get pulled over again in the first place. Otherwise, I'm stuck in the heat of the moment. And heat of the moment tends not to get the job done. Thanks, though, for your email. Here's another one from one of our listeners. Uh, Solving problems collaboratively is about crisis prevention, not crisis management. Very well put. Let's see if how many emails we now have time left for. Here we go. Boy, we're making some headway today. Hang on, let me read through this. Hi there, Dr. Green. I have read your book cover to cover and many others in the past six months. Hope to guide my child in his explosive temper with him only being two years old. Do you think I'm on the right path? 
or is the book designed more towards preschool? I know Plan B works well on my four-year-old, but my four-year-old is nowhere near a challenge. My two-year-old is a clever wee boy for his age, and I know he understands, especially when he is empathized with. He simmers slightly, but when he can't get to play with the kettle, for example, there is no distracting him. Then it's biting, kicking, screaming, etc. Do you have a toddler version? Fingers crossed. Uh, no toddler version. Well, the version isn't really any different for toddlers than it is for 17-year-olds. Same three steps. Same three ingredients. It's the same three ingredients whenever you're trying to solve a problem collaboratively. Uh, first, we have to understand, well, you know, same three ingredients for plan B, but there's something that needs to happen before plan B. And we've talked about it quite a bit on the program today. We need to identify unsolved problems ahead of time. So we know what it is that we want to be working with the child on and so that we can do it proactively. We can't do it proactively if we don't identify the unsolved problems ahead of time. Now, simultaneous with that, we also want to identify lagging skills ahead of time so that we know the profile of the child and what's making it so hard for him to solve problems, deal with frustration, be flexible and adaptable. Got to do that ahead of time so the whole process can be proactive and so that we can have the right lenses on. Once we do that, there's basically three ingredients related to solving a problem. First, we have to get the kids' concerns identified. And by the way, uh, similar to what I was talking about with other emails today uh, related to infants, that you, you have, you've got to do that with an infant too. So the fact that you're child is, when you wrote this email, uh, two years old. Um, same same three ingredients as for an infant, so they'd be the same for a two-year-old. Then we have to communicate our concerns. Then we're trying to come up with solutions that are realistic and mutually satisfactory. So, yes, I'm glad that Plan B is working well with your four-year-old. Um, what adjustments you would have to make for your two-year-old? You'll find out. Two minutes left in the program. Let's see if I can answer one more. Uh, well, that's not going to be the one more. It's a little too long to read, unfortunately. Dr. Green, my husband and I have three biological children when we brought my nephew, who was almost four at the time, into our home. He was abandoned and neglected by his birth mother and father, both drug and alcohol users and not married. We adopted this little guy. He had no problems adjusting to another new home. He immediately called us mom and dad. Was verbal, potty trained, outgoing, smelled his food prior to eating, was very picky about what he would eat, very destructive with toys, would urinate on the floor, clothing, toys, uh, vocabulary included many curse words used in correct context, very athletic, abnormally sexual interest in girls in class, uh, blamed family dog for urinating on the floor, lots of other stuff in here. Love this kid, want him to succeed, has a bad negative outlook and blames everyone. I know he sees the world through different eyes and we all owe him 
help? Well, uh, I could have gone into greater detail about some of the other things in your email, including that um, he's already being expelled at his young age. That's not going to fix anything. My advice is going to be the same, and I hope that this guidance lasts us through the summer. Let's identify his lagging skills. Let's identify his unsolved problems. Let's prioritize those unsolved problems. Let's decide which ones are our big fish and which ones are our little fish. Then let's start solving problems collaboratively. Given the sexual aspects of what you described, I also hope that you'll keep your ears and eyes open for other things he may have experienced. I hope everyone listening to this program has a great summer. Kids are waiting for you. Take care. Talk to you in September.